everybody. Welcome to Don't Get in the Van. I'm Mandy. And I'm Caitlin. And today, Caitlin has another installment of our serial killer couples. And this is the second to last one. So we're starting to wrap this series up. And I do not know anything about this one. I definitely didn't look a thing up because I wanted to be surprised. So I am ready to hear all about it whenever you're ready. Well, all right. So today we're going to be talking about Christine Paolilla and Christopher Snyder. Um, Christine was born Christine Marie Paolilla on Long Island, New York, March 31st, 1986 to Lori and Charles Paolilla. Lori was a stay-at-home mom and her father was a construction worker. When she was just two years old, her father unfortunately died in a construction accident. He was killed uh, when some bricks fell on him during construction on a high-rise building in New York City. And he actually left his entire insurance policy to Christine, um, but she won't get that until she turns 18. Gotcha. And it was a pretty significant sum of money. Okay. Um, after the death of her husband, Lori Paolilla began abusing drugs and eventually lost custody of her children to her parents. And at the age of seven, Christine went to live with her grandparents. So when Christine was in kindergarten, um, she was diagnosed with alopecia, which caused her to lose her hair, eyebrows, and eyelashes. That's essentially what alopecia is, is they have a, um, they have a disorder where hair just either doesn't grow at all, or just starts to fall out all the time. Like she, she'll get hair, but then it'll fall out. So she's pretty much doesn't always have it. Gotcha. Um, and this came on at the age of seven in kindergarten. So I'm sure you can imagine how, uh, how that affected her as a young child yeah, because sure. kids are cruel as fuck. So as a result of her hair loss, she was forced to wear wigs. She also had poor vision and wore thick glasses. Um, she was frequently ridiculed and bullied by her classmates for her appearance, which obviously affected her self-confidence. She was eventually reunited with her mother who overcame her drug addiction and remarried. And the family then moved to Clear Lake City, Texas, which was a suburb of Houston where Christine enrolled at Clear Lake High School. She was befriended by two of the most popular girls in school. Their names were Rachel Calordis, I think. I even watched a documentary, still don't know how to pronounce <laughs> it. Um, and Tiffany Rowell, who helped her to improve her appearance and fit in with other students. Rachel was known for her beautiful, long flowing hair and sensational smile. She had quick wit and was fun to be around. She was considering joining the United States Air Force once she was done with school. And she was a talented artist, very hardworking and had several after school jobs over the years, including babysitting because she loved children so much. Tiffany had a radiant smile and a loving, generous personality. She was a talented actress who dreamed of becoming a social worker, and she was also very beautiful with lots of friends, though Rachel was her best friend. Christine finally felt like she belonged, like she was part of a crowd and felt so comfortable and trusting with her new friends that she would even hang around with them without her wig on, and she'd never do that with anybody else. Her, Her mother reported her as being the happiest she'd ever seen her. So basically Rachel and Tiffany kind of took her under their wing and they showed her she was wearing like really heavy makeup and just really awful looking wigs that you could just tell were like cheap and not, you know what I mean? She didn't know how to take care of them and stuff. Um, She wasn't doing herself any favors in the looks department. She was trying, she wasn't doing a great job. Um, And they kind of took her in and showed her how to wear like less crazy makeup and went with her and helped her shop for nicer wigs, showed her how to take care of them, um, things like that. So that really obviously built her up. Right. Um, In 2003, she was actually voted Miss Irresistible by her school's student body. Christine? Yeah. So you know how in school they always do those superlatives at the end for, yeah, I can't believe Miss Irresistible was a superlative, but okay. There's um, some really stupid ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I, like, I don't do that anymore. I don't like think I do that, that one. I have no idea because I, I haven't not. been in school for a long time, and neither <laughs> of you. So 
Well, with the kids and stuff, I haven't heard like anything. Yeah, but your kids aren't even anywhere near high school yet. High school is when they do that. They don't normally Ugh. do it in other grades. God, I hope they don't. Um, it's, they probably will. It's kind it's of so just like mean. a tradition. It's like a tradition. They do it and it's in the yearbook. Oh, I know, and but doesn't like, it make you like feel like shit if you get nothing or if you get like, I didn't really give a shit. <laughs> I was, I was on the yearbook staff. In oh, fact, God, the, my senior year, I was the editor of the yearbook staff. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really give, give a, a shit. crap. Yeah. No, I didn't <laughs> care. That's so funny. They didn't do that at my school, but I went to a private Catholic high school. So, you know, how oh, yeah, I, I don't not know. Fun. It, it's obviously more of a public school yeah. and not like a church <laughs> school thing. Um, All right. So by the summer of 2003, Rachel and Tiffany were both 18 and they graduated school, um, moved in together and Christine was still 17 at the time. Um, so it was her last year of high school and the girls were obviously a grade ahead of her. So she kind of had a rough go of it there at the end because they left, you know, and they were like her two main friends. Um, but she would go visit and hang out with them and stuff. It was around the same time that Christine began dating at the time, 21 year old Christopher Lee Snyder. Uh, He was born in Crosby, Texas on November 10th, 1984. And these two had actually dated three years prior. Um, But he (laughs) went to juvenile detention center for robbery and they broke up. And then pretty much right when he got out is when they started dating again, which is right around the time that uh, Rachel and Tiffany left school and moved in together. Okay. So Christine's mother and stepfather disapproved of Chris um, as did Rachel and Tiffany because of his frequent drug use and extensive criminal record. Lori, Christine's mother later recalled that Chris isolated her daughter from her friends and family and indicated that she had been raped and that the relationship was both abusive and dysfunctional. Christine began doing drugs with Chris and there was a lot of jealousy. He started isolating Christine from her family and friends and apparently emotionally abusing her. In one instance, he even showed up at school one day and pulled her wig off to embarrass her in front of her classmates. That's rude. But Christine suffered from low self-esteem and craved his attention. So it really didn't do anything. Now, this is something that quite a few people have said as well, which I don't know if there's a lot, uh, how much stake we should put into it. But since multiple sources cited it, we're going to say it anyway. Okay. Um, She apparently demanded violent rough sex from him as if she wanted him to punish her and she got incredibly jealous if you talk to other girls pretty much everybody said that if they'd be hanging out and she would even like look in the direction of an, or he would even look in the direction of another girl she'd be like what the fuck do you think you're looking at huh like she I was mean- on his ass about it when they would fight christine would sleep on chris's front lawn until he let her inside Uh, She rattled the screen door and tried to break into the house and the police were actually called quite a few times uh, when the two would get into it. (laughs) Chris's Chris's family also said that the relationship was tumultuous and that Christine was prone to jealousy. They were called that after a particular fight with Chris, not only did she spend the night on the front lawn of his family's home, she even threatened to kill his entire family. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. God. Well, stop sleeping in the front lawn first. She's a fucking psychopath, dude. So Christine's parents tried to keep her away from him. They would ground her and take things away. And when they discovered the drug abuse, they even consulted with attorneys and police officers and tried to get restraining orders against Chris. But that was to no avail. So with all the drama, violence and drugs within Christine and Chris's relationship, her friendships with Rachel and Tiffany started to dwindle. Tiffany and Rachel really did not like him for her. And they definitely let her know that. Yeah. Well, sounds like it's just, they're not good for each other at all. At all. And everyone's yeah. telling them this. But, oh yeah. But you know, you know, that probably made <laughs> you know how them, that goes for yeah. high schoolers. Yeah. They were like, fine. Then that's exactly what I want to do. So apparently there were no hard feelings between any of them. Um, they did start to kind of drift apart um and not hang out quite as much you know because of their differences with chris or whatever but rachel still kept christine's school photo in her purse and christine had written 
a few things on the back of it, but basically it was just like, damn, we've had some crazy memories. I'll like, I'll love you forever. Kind of a thing. Yeah. On the back of the picture. And she kept that in her, in her purse. Okay. So the girls just really didn't spend a whole lot of time together anymore. You know, it's just like the natural progression of a friendship kind of dwindling out. Christine and Chris were using a ton of drugs at this point, which was expensive, obviously. And so they needed more money. And according to Christine, Chris suggested that they rob Rachel and Tiffany. So she went along with it. Of course, this is all according to Christine. So on the afternoon of July 18th, 2003, Chris and Christine went to put, went to pay a visit to Rachel and Tiffany at their place they had together. They'd planned to throw a party later that afternoon. So there were a couple of people there, including Tiffany's 19-year-old boyfriend, Marcus Parcella, and his 22-year-old cousin, Albert Sanchez. Basically, they kind of, they show up there and some stuff goes down and then they leave. And none of the neighbors hear anything, but a couple neighbors do end up seeing Chris and Christine walking up to the house. They stand outside in the driveway for a second and talk, and then they just go in. But since they knew the two younger girls lived there and they were always friends over, they really didn't think anything of it. They right. did say they were both dressed all in black though. <laughs> so are we, what does that matter? So that <laughs> e- right. Um, and it's during the day, by the way. <laughs> so whatever happens, they leave. That night they were supposed to have that party, right? So some friends show up to the party and when they show up, they find four dead people and a lot of blood everywhere. So the police are called and basically this is what the police say. They found four bodies in the living room of the home. There was blood everywhere. They were able to count a total of 40 shots fired. God, coming and nobody from- heard anything? Coming from two different kinds of guns, by the way, two different shell casings. Tiffany and her boyfriend, Marcus, were found shot to death sitting on the couch, and it looked as if they were shot while they were just sitting there watching a movie. On the documentary, they showed the photos, and it's one of those couches that's like the two, it's like a three-seater couch, you know, and the two ends like pop up and recline out. And they're both just kind of like reclined out, just kind of shrugged, just, you know what I mean? Like they'd just been shot and killed just as they were laying there. Marcus's cousin, Albert, was found shot dead on the floor. He was behind the couch, like laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Rachel definitely got the worst of it. She'd been shot several times, um, but she didn't actually die from her gun wounds. She was found. and it, it, it looks like she was trying to crawl away and she had the phone in her hand and the phone had the numbers nine and one dialed in it. So she was trying to dial 911, but she just didn't get there mm-hmm. um, before she was repeatedly bashed in the back of the head with a blunt object. So she uh, was actually killed from just getting beaten to death in the back of the head after being shot a gazillion times. The nature and precision precision of the shots, like I said, over 40 bullets being fired, police were kind of like marveling at their accuracy, indicating a possible execution style slaying. But the personal anger directed towards Rachel, um, known among investigators as overkill, suggested that the murder had a personal relationship with at least this victim. So both girls actually had gunshots to their crotches. What the fuck? And Rachel had them in her butt as well. So she was obviously trying to like crawl away and was still getting shot. Um, And this is a strong indicator of sexual jealousy or competition. Yeah. So as for physical evidence, there really wasn't anything found at the scene. Um, But like I said, the neighbor did report seeing a female and a male dressed in all black walking up to the house. They didn't suspect anything at the time and they didn't really pay much attention to them to pay much attention until after hearing about the murders and then they were like oh weird so the neighbors ended up giving descriptions to a sketch artist at the houston police department and they sketched up a couple of composite sketches of the suspects police basically thought that maybe the murders were likely drug related and they kind of stuck to that Um, both Rachel and Tiffany were working waitressing shifts at a local strip club. 
and um you know the cops are like well the world of strip clubs is normally has a pretty big reputation for being seedy and uh you know not the best reputation so basically they thought that they could have gotten targeted that way um tiffany's boyfriend marcus was also rumored to be dealing ecstasy and cocaine so that was kind of the other major focus of their efforts was you know a drug deal gone wrong now i do want to mention that what's kind of funny about the fact that they just keep going with this drug related thing which um isn't entirely untrue but there were just gobs of money laying around there were drugs laying around they found bags and bags of weed and all kinds of drugs and just like like stacks of money in the house so obviously if this was like a drug deal gone wrong or you know what i mean like some kind of drug competition thing you would think that they would have rounded up and stole all the fucking drugs right and the money right but nonetheless they stick with their drug thing and that's the story they're going with but and they supposedly Christine and Chris went there to get like to steal money from them, but that wasn't taken either. Chris Christine says that they went to steal money. Yes. But there was literally like, like, you know, like the folded over, like, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. big ass fucking hunks of money. They're just like sitting on the table, like the coffee table and shit in the fucking photos with the dead bodies. Like it was there. Like there's no way they didn't see it. Interesting. Okay. So they didn't steal shit. Right. So I don't know, Christine, but okay. (laughs) So despite over 400 leads in the early months, most leading back to those drug associations, the investigation went nowhere. No one thought to suspect Christine in large part because few women, let alone teenage girls, commit murder. Of the 1,190 juveniles arrested for murder or manslaughter in the United States in 2009, only 7% were females. So after a couple of years had passed and life had went on, Chris winds up in a Kentucky jail on an old car theft warrant. And at this point, him and Christine break up because they stayed together and lived their whatever life together for right. years after this. Christine ends up in drug rehab in Carryville, Texas, and she meets a longtime heroin addict named Justin Rott. Those two end up getting married. And at this time, Christine has turned 18 and she gets that $360,000 trust that was left to her by her father from his insurance. Um, And they buy a condo, but their nesting period was short-lived. So they move in and Christine sees a news story on TV about the anniversary of her best friend's unsolved murders. She calls Justin into the room to watch it. And as the police sketches are on the screen, she starts unraveling. She's pacing around the living room and she's like, oh my, oh my, over and over and over again. Then she stops and just stares at Justin. And she's like, does that look like me? And having basically offered a semi-confession, she soon tells him what happened that afternoon. At least a version of the events, which she was surprisingly passive about. So she says that she and Chris went to the house to steal money and drugs. It was his idea. Chris surprised her by handing her a gun just before they entered the house. He then shot Rachel, which was another surprise to her, apparently. And then she claimed the gun she was carrying just went off on its own. Mm -hmm. And she lost control of it as she fired blindly around the room, crying the whole time. After they left the crime scene, she told Chris she had to go back inside to make sure they're all dead. Once she gets back inside, she sees Rachel crawling on the floor, trying to dial 911 on her cell phone while gaggling, gargling on her own blood. So at that point, Christine took out her pistol, leveled it over her head, holding it by the barrel like a hammer and began in a whipping motion, pounding on the back of Rachel's head, bashing her skull in, making sure that she was dead. Um, so for Chris to come in here and be like, oh, here's a gun randomly before they go in and just start shooting people. She blindly fucking shoots around the room. Then she says that they leave to get in the car and she's like, oh, I had to go inside and make sure everybody's dead and then just beats her fucking best friend's head in with a gun. 
Yeah, but all of this was a surprise and it was none of it was planned and she had no idea this was going to happen but that's her fucking that's what she resorts to that's insane and she's insane. acting like insane. the gun just went like crazy in her hand and just started randomly oh, just wait because the story changes multiple times and it just gets fucking better so once everything's finished christine apparently orders chris to drive her to work she needed to clock in for her shift behind the makeup counter at walgreens and she didn't want to be late so Justin Rott moves through a version of stages of grief. He goes through shock, anger, denial, and finally acceptance. So the couple stick together and they decide to go on the run oh. because now these sketches are up and she's like, that looks like me. So I'm probably going to get figured out soon. So we should just start running. Right. Oh so they move into a room at the La Quinta Inn and embarked on a drug binge as epic in its volume as in its squalor yikes this is her she and justin her and her new husband justin rot okay so they shot up 500 dollars worth of heroin Ooh. and cocaine daily daily not in total while living on cheese it's reese's peanut butter cups soda and pizza and these are all things you can see in the fucking crime scene photos. Oh my God. He never left the room and never allowed housekeeping to come in. And as the weeks accumulated, it was literally strewn with blood, vomit, their dog's feces, oh. and over a hundred needles. Oh God. The photos of this are crazy. I can only imagine. They lived in that room for seven months seven months they never let room service come in and clean their sheets or anything Ugh. and you can tell they were just shooting up constantly because there's little blood spots Aww. all over the pillows all over the furniture all over the fucking bed i mean it's fucking everywhere and there's just needles and garbage it's just gross so 10 that's, days that's insane insane but that's what drug addicts do. Yeah. They live in fucking squalor and they literally just spend their money on drugs. Yeah. 10 days before the third anniversary of the murders, Houston police received an anonymous tip from a man later confirmed not to be Justin, who said that he'd met Christine in rehab and she had told him how she and her boyfriend committed the Clear Lake murders, which is what they were dubbed, by the way, the Clear Lake murders. Oh, okay. Time. I'm looking at that. Gross. Holy fuck. Ugh, those sheets are disgusting. They don't, they not only look dirty, but there's literally just blood spots all over them. Like it's oh, like one of yeah. the fucking grossest things ever. If you really look at it, you can see, you see all the fucking oh. needles everywhere. Yes. Oh God. Oh God. Oh my. That is a lot. Holy fuck. Okay. I'm going to have to post these pictures on the Instagram because yeah. nobody's going to fucking believe this shit unless they see it. No, they wouldn't. I mean, this is disgusting. It is out of control. So the cops tracked her down through her ATM activity. And within two days of that tip, they arrested her. Well, when the police arrived at the hotel room, they were both so. I don't even know what the term is, but just like. Shocked drugged out oh that they were you. they were barely incoherent because oh, they were both imagine. so fucking strung out on heroin that they were like barely even aware of what was going on so when police bring the pair in for questioning christine denies the murder allegations and claimed to be the heartbroken grieving friend in fact, back in the day, she was so devastated, she couldn't even make it to her best friend's funerals. And when they spoke to Christine's husband, Justin, he pretty much tells them everything. So she's <laughs> she's in one room completely denying everything. And he's in the other room literally fucking telling them everything that she told him, like everything. He's just fucking spilling all the tea. So... He tells them that he knew all about the murders because Christine had confessed to him some time ago. And that's why they were on the run living yeah. in a hotel room. So with his testimony in hand, they arrested Christine 
for capital murder. And her bail was set at 500,000 because she was considered to be a flight risk, obviously, because they were on the run. Um, So then they want to start looking for Christopher Snyder. So in June of 2006, Christopher Snyder moved to Greenville, South Carolina, where he had met a girl on Facebook, started dating, moves out there and moves in with her. After Christine's arrest, one of Chris's family members called him to inform him that police had issued a warrant for his arrest in relation to the murders. Acting on a tip that Chris may have committed suicide, police went to Greenville and searched near an area where Chris was reported to have been seen, which was basically like the woods across the street from his new girlfriend's house. His decomposing body was found in a heavily wooded area on August 5th of 2006, and it was determined that he had overdosed on his girlfriend's prescription medication to commit suicide so that he wouldn't have to get arrested. So at this point, Christine finds out that Chris is dead, and she continues to tell a variety of different versions of events because now she has nobody to combat what she's saying basically chris cannot tell his version of events now so she's able to totally blame it all on him and there's nobody to back him up in one of her police interrogations christine said that when she and chris parked near the house it became clear he was up to no good i was right behind chris she told an investigator i stayed behind him like the whole time because i felt so bad i was just so scared The detective asked her what she felt. He was going to, you know, shoot me, she replied. Chris started arguing with Marcus and it was getting loud, she said. And that's when I heard the first gunshot. I wanted to run, but I couldn't. I felt so scared and I felt so sick. And then I felt like I kept hearing like the bubble wrap noises like pop, 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 pop. Christine said Chris had forced her to carry a gun. Then she said he made her fire it. So the gun was in your hand, the interrogator asked. He was holding on to it too. And I was scared and I was crying and like uh, I had made the gun go off, not purposely, a million times. So basically, she claimed that Chris Snyder killed all of the people and she just held the gun, which is pretty convenient since Chris has now killed himself and is no longer around to tell his own version of these events. Um, yeah. On October 13th, 2008, she was convicted of four counts of capital murder. As she had been a juvenile offender at the time of the killings, she was spared the death penalty, but the following day she was sentenced to life in prison. As of 2020. Christine is incarcerated at the Mountain View unit in Gatesville, Texas, and will be eligible for parole in 2046. She'll be age 60 by then. Um, But she did, however, file an appeal immediately after she was convicted. And I have some of that um, court documentation we're going to go over here in a second. But first, I would like to play a little bit of this um, interrogation. Okay. I would like to hear her her voice, actually. (laughs) Yeah, she has like a really fucking squeaky, girly, annoying voice, in my opinion. So you really like this girl. (laughs) Yeah, I can't stand her. I can tell. Um, Okay, let me find this clip. All right, so here's some of this interrogation. Okay. Okay, like a top of your hand or something? Yes. Like, I couldn't tell you how it was. Like, that one that that um like I was scared and I was like crimping and then I uh I had made the the gun go off not not purposely though but like it it went to the, like the back of the room because I was just like screaming just like shaking so somehow like you pulled the trigger yes okay and he's like you know one two three and he's like come on you bitch you bitch you bitch and he started just screaming at me and then you know he. It kept like it felt like like I was like being like jerked like like you know like it was violent when the when it goes off. Mm-hmm. How many times do you think it went off in your hand? A million times. It, it went off a bunch in your hand. It, it felt like a million times, like it, the, even like the first time. It felt like a million you, times. So you you're pulling the trigger somehow? No, no, like it, it's like he had his hand, and my hand was like. I, I, I couldn't even tell you how, like, it was, it was, 
but it, it was his force that was making the, yes okay. are you hitting anyone i i don't i don't know i it, come on it, it's important this is important okay you're doing a good job if if, if you're probably if you're like this and you're doing it you know that you're hitting the person in front of you well it, we it, we weren't really like in front of anybody were you near anyone it was it was almost back like in the middle of them in the door Okay, well, somebody was found in that area. Are you sure there's no one by you? I, I, I okay, okay. So, okay, okay. But the gun went off a bunch of times? Did, did, did it stop? Did it run out of bullets? I, I don't. I couldn't tell you. I was just so, I was so okay. scared. It was. Then what happened? It's like it just felt like it was like like I like a blackout almost, you know, like sure. everything, like just, okay. you know, like hypnotized kind of like, you know, but I, all I can remember, I was just like, you know, I started, I was screaming and like, you know, and just like, you know, I, I kept trying to like, you know, like pull, pull away, but like, but I couldn't cause I felt like just like spaghetti almost. Right. Okay. So what happened after all that? And then, and then I ran, or I, I didn't, I didn't run yet, but he kept, um, then I, I heard like, like I, I heard like shots, but, but it wasn't from my gun. It was, or the one that, that he gave me because like, I, I was like holding on to it and then, and then like, I'm trying to remember how this happened because I remember it was just like it was so quick. Like I heard like other like shots like going off. From his gun, I guess. I I I don't I don't know what kind I mean, of. There wasn't a third person it, shooting. No, no, okay. it it's just everything was like it, everything got like you know like quiet like but you know how like in the in the movie Saving Private Ryan you can mm -hmm. hear like shooting but like you can't hear like anything else. Right. You know, like you can hear people or whatever, and then, um, and then, uh, <sighs> this bitch really just referenced saving Private Ryan. <laughs> I do have to say, the most cohesive sentence she had in the entire time was, "You know, the movie Private Ryan." The rest of the time, she made me want to pull every string I'm of my like, hair out. I'm like, bitch, spit it out. What mm -hmm. are you trying to say? Just fucking say it. It reminds me of, okay, and this, it's not the same, but when a child, like, okay, earlier, my nine-year-old was trying to tell me a story and he couldn't get it out. Kids do that. You know, their brains are moving fast and whatnot. And, you know, they're smart and he couldn't get it all out. And I was like, oh, my God, she's used on. a lot of drugs. So yeah. she's not super she smart. She doesn't have any like words in her brain. Like no. she's like, no, but she uh, can, she and, can, but she can bring up Saving Private Ryan, though. Oh, remember in the movie Saving Private, Saving Private Ryan? And you're like, wait a second. You just used a full sentence. Wait a second. You could have yeah, said what? something more you know giving us a little more information here because you can use complete sentences anyway yeah. that was very torturous to listen to yes i mean he had a lot of patience with her he was actually i thought a little bit too passive with her a little bit too like oh she sounds so sweet okay what happened next honey and it's like come on like you said bitch spit it out like you she's the only one that can tell them anything that happened they don't have anybody else <sighs> that they can really interrogate on it so they kind of have to Whoa. kiss her ass a little bit to get her to give them any information she acts like she was like possessed by or like someone took over her body and she has no idea what happened and she just had this gun and, and, was and firing and, and but uh uh um and and bitch <laughs> fuck okay Ooh. so why a 17 year old girl would turn so violently on the only people who wouldn't stab her in the back as she once said is unsure but Chris's sister, Brandy, has an idea. Uh-oh. She said, I remember her being intensely jealous. 
There must have been some underlying jealousy between Christine and Rachel. When I saw photos of Rachel, I knew instantly because she was very beautiful. And like I said, the two girls had been shot in the crotch, but the boys hadn't. So obviously there was something, you know what I mean, to that. So the killings were known as the Clear Lake murders and they made national headlines. There were also quite a few uh, documentaries. There was a series on 2020, episode on Snapped, an episode on Killer Kids, an episode on Forensic Files, Deadly Women, and Red Rum. Now I want to read you a couple of excerpts from this Court of Appeals document that was filed on May 26, 2011. I'm only going to read a couple parts of it because it was obviously pretty long, but some of them I thought were just too interesting not to share. So in the portion about that's labeled the arrest and appellant's recorded statements. The warrant was executed at 11.55 a.m. on July 19, 2006. When police entered the hotel room, they were met with evidence that the occupants had been using substantial amounts of heroin. Hundreds of used syringe littered the room, syringes littered the room. Appellant was wearing a t-shirt stained with blood and several needle marks could be found over her body. Appellant was escorted to the San Antonio Police Department where she agreed to a videotaped interview at 2.45 p.m. During the interrogation, Applin admitted to driving Snyder to Rowell's house on the day of the offense. She said they originally went there to purchase drugs, but they made a return trip when Snyder complained, complained of forgetting something. Applin insisted that Snyder went into the house by himself on both occasions while she remained in the car. When Snyder returned the second time, she saw him running with a gun in his hands. She denied ever hearing any gunshots. The interrogation ended at approximately 3.50 p.m. Applin, however, remained alone in the interview room as the recorder continued to tape. In the ensuing minutes, her condition clearly began to deteriorate. She grew visibly tired of appearing weak and sick. The recording ended just after 3.58 p.m. when Applet requested to see a nurse claiming she was bleeding. Applet was transported to Santa Rosa Hospital in San Antonio at approximately 4.12 p.m. Medical records indicate she was currently menstruating, but no other signs of bleeding were reported. Applet did present, though, with a chief complaint of heroin withdrawal. She informed doctors that she was accustomed to taking heroin every 10 to 15 minutes and that her last injection was roughly 10 a.m. that morning. At 5.30 p.m., Applant was administered six milligrams of morphine and 20 milligrams of methadone. Using only an audio recorder, Interrogators continue their interview inside the hospital at 6.15 p.m. During this session, Applin again denied ever entering the home. She stated, however, that a fight erupted inside, with Snyder admitting to shooting all four complainants. The interview concluded at 7.15 p.m. At approximately 9 p.m., just before her discharge, Applin received additional doses, doses of morphine and methadone. Applant was flown to Houston later that evening. She slept on the flight and through part of the next day after being placed in a jail cell. Following the unrecorded interview during the afternoon of July 20th, Applant complained of illness and requested to see a doctor. She was taken to Ben Taub Hospital at 6.50 p.m. and again treated for heroin withdrawal, this time receiving 25 milligrams of Librium at 10.07 p.m. Applant was discharged at 11 p.m. and escorted back to police headquarters in downtown Houston. A final videotaped interrogation commenced at 11.38 p.m. During this interview, Applant stated that Snyder forced her into the house on the return trip, making her hold one of his two guns. Although she denied aiming at any of the complainants, She stated that Snyder pulled the trigger a number of times while she held the gun in her hand. The interrogation ended at 1.39 a.m. on July 21st. Applant was then returned to her jail cell. Then record does not show that she complained of illness following the interview. So this is what she's saying in her appeals forms. But if you watch the actual interview tapes, which I did see some of them after they get done talking to her, she's acting like she's sick. But as soon as they leave the room and she doesn't think they're recording her anymore, she's up alert, looking out the window, like 
trying to figure shit out. You can tell she's just like wheels are turning. She's like trying to figure out like what she's going to do, where she's at, what's going on. You know what I mean? She's like looking out the window and just like trying to figure shit out mm-hmm. right before they come back in. She goes back over and curls up in the fetal position and acts like she feels like shit again. Doesn't she know that there's, that they're recording her? What the fuck? Like I said, she thought that maybe they had stopped recording at that point. Because so I'm sure they probably told her that. Yeah, but. that's true, but still. Okay, so the next section I wanted to read is under cruel and unusual punishment. In her first issue, Applant contends a mandatory life sentence violates the Eighth Amendment's uh, prescription against cruel and unusual punishment when imposed on a juvenile offender. In her second issue, she contends the trial court abused its direction by denying her motion for mistrial. In issues three through six, she contends the trial court erred in dismissing the opinions of Dr. Glass and in denying her motion to suppress. We examine these issues slightly out of order considering her second issue last. The final uh, section here is motion for mistrial. And this isn't the whole part. It's just the part of it that I thought was super interesting. So Finally, even if the prosecutor's argument did encourage the jury to speculate on facts not in the record, evidence of Applin's participation in the murders was already well sustained. For instance, the Lackners witnessed Applin casually approaching Rowell's house on the day of the murders. In her third recorded statement, Applin herself admitted to being inside the home and holding a gun as her boyfriend pulled the trigger. Bullets from both guns used in the murders ultimately struck two of the complainants. Although this evidence may not be suggestive of direct guilt, we cannot say that the prosecutor's argument affected the likelihood of Applin's conviction as a party to the murders. Having considered each of the factors adopted in Hawkins, we conclude the trial court did not abuse its discretion by denying Applin's motion for mistrial. Applin's second issue is overruled. Conclusion, the judgment of trial court is affirmed. So basically they denied her appeal. Um, I just thought that that was really she was interesting. Trying everything. Well, yeah, like they throw in the appeal and she's basically trying to say that like, because of all of her withdrawals and shit going on, mm-hmm. like they shouldn't have been questioning her because she wasn't in her right mind. And then, you know, later she's like, she had told all these different versions of the story and there, she's basically trying to say that, you know, I, it's just so ridiculous, the whole thing. And then there was a doctor that was saying that like some of the stuff, anyway, it was a Crazy. lot and I just thought it was really entertaining basically yeah. to read that. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much it. That's what I've got for you. I really couldn't find a whole ton of information about him. Unfortunately, he was apparently a fuck up from day one. So there's no extra information about him. He just had always kind of been getting into trouble and whatever. I couldn't find anything about his early life childhood. If he was abused or any of that shit, um, couldn't find anything about that. So, so interesting. That was it. Like every outlet that I looked into for research was pretty much all just talking about her and the documentaries that I watched, nobody suggests him more than two seconds when they're talking about him going to, you know, getting her into drugs and going to jail and shit. So, and again, he killed himself. So there's no way to ask him what his version of the events are. Well, he had to have been pretty guilty if he killed himself, but still she, I think they're just as guilty as one. Well, and they stayed together for a time after the murders were committed so obviously if he was the one who forced her to do all this shit i can't imagine that she would stay with him and then only break up with him when he goes to jail yeah it just doesn't you know yeah so did it say did anything happen with her husband did he get in trouble for oh he got in trouble too yeah they had fuck ton of drugs with them Right. But oh, he yeah. also like he knew about it. And he didn't say anything. So was that like, I don't know. They didn't concealing. say anything about that. They didn't say anything about that, but he was arrested on drug charges because gotcha. they had both been using a lot, just insane amounts of heroin. Yeah. My and both of them had, you know what I mean? Like, like holes and shit all over them, yeah. just, like showing that they were using these drugs. And he was also a known heroin addict anyway. Right. She met him in rehab. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, seven months in a hotel room, shooting up $500 worth of heroin a day. I can't even imagine A fucking day. I don't know how much like one little shoot up of heroin is, but I can only imagine if she was used to doing it every five to 10 minutes a day. (laughs) 
I'm trying to figure this out. So $500, right? Times seven months, right? So that's seven. So 210 days. Wow. Well, there's also theories out there that Justin Rott um, kind of kind of pursued her because they knew like he knew about her, like mm -hmm. getting that inheritance or whatever. Yeah. And so he kind of pursued her in order to fuel his drug addiction. And she obviously just goes along with whatever the fuck, whoever the fuck she's with does. So, right. So, yeah, that's one hundred and five thousand dollars worth of heroin. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Well, that's a third of her inheritance right yeah, there. Right there, down the drain. Yeah, so she can get out of jail sometime in 2040 something, you said. So she'll be 60. Well, I she'll be up for parole, but I seriously doubt that they're going to, to let her out. Let her out. Wow. Interesting. I would I would actually be interested to hear more of her interview because it was just so like, I mean, it was really hard to hear, but I'm wondering like what, how she changes, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, her story changed about a million fucking times. At first, she didn't go in at all, even though the neighbors saw her enter the house. Then yeah. she went in, but she hid in the corner and didn't do anything. Then she went in and she had a gun in her hand and he put his hand over her hand and shot the gun for her. You know, like when she talked to her boyfriend, she was basically like bragging that she's the one who hit the fucking girl in the back of the head. Right. Like, you know, there's just like so many different versions. Like one of the people that she went to rehab with also said that when she told them that story, the one that called in the tip, yeah. he said that she was literally bragging about killing those people and like having not been caught. Asshole. God. She's a piece of shit. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, there's that story and Very i guess chris chris did everybody a favor by just uh, taking himself out i guess although did he really because i would have been really interested to hear his version of events me too huh you know because if you think about it too there's no way that they just went in there and she's freaking out and there's literally two other grown men and two girls, and they're just going to be like, yeah, somebody has a gun at me. No one's going to try to do anything to stop it. Basically, the thought is, like the theory is, is that the reason that they killed them is because the two girls basically told, this is a theory, but everybody thinks that basically the two girls told her, like, we can't be your friend anymore if you're going to date this asshole because we don't fucking like him at all. And right. so she basically went and told him that and they were like, oh, all right, fuck them. We're just going to go kill him then. And they weren't expecting the boyfriend or the other guy to be there. They were expecting yeah. to just go in and kill them. And they ended up killing all four people. But that was kind of like the assumption, you know, or like the main theory that everybody kind of has for why it happened. Don't think that it was drug related at all. Again, there were tons of drugs in the house. They didn't take any of them. They didn't take any of the money. So I don't think that the theory holds up that they were trying to rob them of anything because nothing was taken. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, not at all. That doesn't make any sense. I think that she just got really fucking jealous because they were really pretty and she just couldn't fucking handle it. They didn't like her boyfriend. And so they just decided to fucking kill him yeah it doesn't make any sense but murder never makes sense so right but they met when she went to high school right and they really befriended her and they well yeah so when she got to high school out there in texas because you know she started in new york when they got to texas everybody was making fun of her and stuff and they kind of felt bad for her so they took her under their wing and yeah. she actually met chris at 14 Oh. But they didn't start, but they didn't start dating again until she was like 17. Yeah. And he was 21 at this point. Yeah. But I mean, even before when they first got together, like three years prior, you know, he was getting into trouble and getting her into drugs and shit. And none of them like agreed with that situation at all. So then when they moved out and got their own place, cause they got out of high school mm -hmm. and he gets out of jail and comes back, they're all just like, what the fuck dude? Like we thought you were done with this. Yeah. But apparently you're not. Apparently you're not. God. Well, that's a disaster. Pretty sure she was an only child. And the only other sibling we know of for Chris is his sister, Brandy. Right. Who obviously didn't think very highly of Christine. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> did you get not to see, did you see her on the documentary? The snapped episode that I watched, nobody, like none of the family members or anybody were involved. It was just the police and then some authors that have written books about it and shit. Gotcha. That is a good show for this to be on snapped. 
because it is like what the fuck just happened yeah huh all right well interesting well thank you thanks mm-hmm. for sharing <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that was fun to watch documentaries on since you hate this girl so much <laughs> You usually don't have this big of like a, like, I don't know why I don't (laughs) like her so much. I just don't. It's her voice. It's everything. I think that's just under your skin. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I understand. Yes, she does. All right. Well, you want to move on to trivia? Sure. (laughs) All right. So last week's question was who was caught after accidentally leaving a probation document behind at a crime scene? And the answer is the I-95 killer, Gary Ray Bowles, which we did have two people write in. They answered correctly this week. And that was Daniele 822 and Strawberry Cheesecake. Okay. So good job. Good job. Um, All right. This week's question is, in 1978, a grocer in Paris was sent to jail for two years for stabbing his wife with what? Oh, man. Could be anything. Okay. Anyway, cool. you guys know the drill. DM us your answers. Let us know what you think. That's right. <laughs> this is a good one. It is a good one. I'm excited to hear what everybody comes up with. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And we have one more serial killer couple to discuss. I'll bring that to you next week. And after that, we have another fun series that we we're not announcing yet. No, we're not announcing it yet, (laughs) (laughs) but that'll be something fun to look forward to. And, um, yeah, so thanks for listening, like share rate review to share with everyone. Uh, like we said, we are wanting to go to crime con, but we want to not just go, we want to be on podcast row. So share with your friends. Let's get these, um, you know, get the follows up there, get the reviews up there. We really appreciate you guys. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Cool. Well, as always. Remember, don't Don't get get in the the van. van.